0: Uh could you tell me what you had for breakfast, please?
1: Um, I had my usual coffee and protein bar while staring out the window and wishing I'd eaten more calories.
0: Optimal <laughs> minimal At this altitude I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is in a perfect time.
1: What if I did the opposite? cybernetic organism living tissue over metal endoskeleton.
0: This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, my heterogeneous homo sapiens, homicidal tomcats, that doesn't make any sense. I was going to say homicidal homo sapiens, but heterogeneous, why don't we say heterogeneous like erogenous sons? I don't know. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to the Tim Ferriss Show. My job every episode is to deconstruct a world-class performer and to show you how they do what they do. What are the favorite books, the routines, the habits? How did they achieve the success they've achieved? Whether they are chess prodigies like Josh Waitzkin or actors like Arnold Schwarzenegger, director like John Favreau, comedians, athletes, hedge fund managers, We've got everybody, startup impresarios like Peter Thiel and so on. This time, we have, by request, Scott Adams. Scott Adams is a very famous cartoonist. He's the creator of the Dilbert comic strip and the author of several different books that are nonfiction. And he and I have a very wide-ranging conversation. We've met before, and we cover things such as his use of affirmations, written affirmations for the stock market, for success with women. For his career as a cartoonist, we talk about hypnosis, why he became interested in hypnosis. Common misconceptions about hypnosis and uh, how he used different techniques or aspects of what he learned to make Dilbert popular. Even the name itself, he goes into. We talk about a current fascination of his, which <laughs> I say which which or who is Donald Trump and uh, the negotiator in chief that he is uh, campaigning to become, and uh, why the political press misses a lot of the genius that perhaps the business press should. Catch. Uh, we talk about goals versus systems, so how he has approached his life with systems, in many cases, instead of goals. And he and I, oddly, or perhaps not so coincidentally, share a lot in common there. We talk about his first ever Dilbert check, the six dimensions of humor. So how can you engineer humor? in, say, a comic strip or elsewhere. We talk about the most underrated comic book strips and comics, in his opinion, how he got into the best shape of his life at 58, and much, much more. It's a really fun conversation. He is one hell of a character, a very hilarious guy, as you would hope. And uh, the banter is, uh, I found, a really good time. So I hope that comes across via audio. And without further ado, please enjoy Scott Adams and say hi to him. It is at scott adams says on twitter so give a give a hello give a thank you give him some feedback and uh there you have it the without further ado is a little premature but here we go without further ado scott adams please enjoy scott my good man welcome to the show Hey, thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you on because many of the guests who've been on this podcast are fans of yours. I'm a fan of your work and of you personally. And there there are a few things I'd like to thank you for. The first is helping me to learn different languages because I bought the Dilbert Principle in many different languages, Chinese, Spanish, German, English, as a way to learn conversational languages, number one. And then number two is for your tennis lesson, which was the first proper tennis lesson I've ever had. So right off the bat, I wanted to thank you for being very good at helping me to make progress in both of those areas. Oh, there's so much I can teach you, Tim. Uh, We're just... (laughs) We're just getting started. <laughs> well, you you know, the, the languages in tennis go a long way. I feel like, you know, have, have tennis racket and, and a few words will travel.
1: By the uh, way, I got to tell you, the first time I saw one of my books translated into Portuguese, I think I had this strange sensation that I could speak the language because I knew what the word said. <laughs>
0: it, was, it was the coolest thing. Well, that is that is actually really related because I what I'll do is – With these languages, if I learn, for instance, uh, Japanese first, then I will use the Japanese and say a target language of Spanish to learn the Spanish. In other words, I already know what's in the book on some level, just like memorizing lines in a movie, but I will use the Japanese to help me learn the Spanish so that they're linked together. And that way I get to review previous languages while learning new languages. And I was so impressed with how you were able to teach me tennis, uh, or at least get me up and running with the basics in such a very short period of time. And I feel like you're very methodical in many different areas, and you have methods that other people can use. And one of the specific behaviors that I'd love to hear you perhaps elaborate on just right off the bat is... The idea of verbal or written affirmations. So Naval, one of our mutual friends, was on this podcast, and, and he was mentioning that at some point, at least based on, in, on his recollection, you had gone into your office at the time and gone into the bathroom and said to yourself in the mirror, I will be a successful cartoonist, or something like that multiple times. I've also heard that you write things down, say, 10, 15 times. Could you perhaps uh, explain a bit, of how you use affirmations if you do? You have accidentally
1: given me the greatest um, beginning anecdote to a long explanation anybody ever did. So <laughs> All right. uh, true, true story. Just a few days ago I was having dinner with Naval and I'm just making conversation, you know, hadn't seen him in a while. And just randomly, because I knew I was coming on your podcast, I said, Naval, have you ever done the you know Tim Ferriss podcast? And he gets this weird expression in his face, and he says, I just came from there. It was the most most random thing any two people could have said to each other after not seeing for a while. But that that weird story um, is a story about coincidence, right? Yeah, you know, there's no magic that happened there. It was just a, a strange coincidence, and probably wasn't even a coincidence because the fact that we both know you and you know, there's something in the air, and maybe you bunch your bunch your interviews in a certain way or mm-hmm. think about them in a certain way. So I'm sure there's no real coincidence there. There's just something we didn't see underlying it all. So that's the backdrop for affirmations. Let me say first that. What I'm saying is not my belief that if you say your affirmations, something magical will happen and the universe will change in, in some non-science way. All right, So I never made that claim, although often people have put that uh, opinion in my mouth. What I have said is that I've used the technique, and I got a certain experience, which I'll be happy to share, and that I tell the story. All right? You can make of it what you will. I have several explanations for why there seems to be what I would call the, the appearance of an effect, which, by the way, would be amazing in itself. Of course. If you could give yourself a genuine feeling that you had a superpower – Even if it wasn't real, as long as it didn't, you know, interfere with your job, nobody thought you were crazy, it'd be a cool feeling. So, so even if it's not real in some sense of reality, still worth having, frankly. So we'd have um, – I'm going to take as long as I want for this, and you can just cut me off. It's a fun story from beginning to end. I like long, A lot this, of people ask that.
0: this. Is what, uh, this is what this format is for, long form, yeah, the, so please go, go for it. Yeah. All
1: right, so I'm in my 20s. I was taking a course in hypnosis to learn how to become a professional hypnotist uh, and get certified. In my class was a woman who was uh, – Also interested in a lot of things that I thought were pretty out there, some new agey stuff. But we became friends and one day she said, you gotta try this thing called affirmations. I read about it in a book and I don't remember the name of the book and so I can't tell you here because she couldn't tell me. And she said, it works like this. All you do is you, you pick a goal and you write it down 15 times a day in some specific sentence form, like, I, Scott Adams, will become an astronaut, for example. And you do that uh, every day, and uh, then it will seem as if the universe just starts spitting up opportunities, and it will look to you like these are coincidences, and whether they are or not is less relevant than the fact that they seem to pop up. So I, of course, being my rational self, you know, at this point, I haven't even decided if hypnosis is a real thing, right? Right. Um, you know, I'm taking the course to find out in part. And so I'm, I'm saying, you know, that seems like a terrible waste of time. There's no science behind that, blah, blah, blah. She convinced me, partly because she was a member of Mensa, uh, that she wasn't dumb. Uh, and, <laughs> Step and one, this, that's good. And then secondly, it didn't cost me anything, right? It was a low investment for something to make her shut up. So I said, all right, I'm going to do this thing. So I picked as my goal um, that I would have an encounter with a woman who was well beyond my – Buying power, shall we say? Uh, this is pre Dilbert, so you know. Mm-hmm. Post Dilbert, you get to add a few points to your right. <laughs> to your attractiveness scale. It's not fair, but that's just the way it works. So, so let's say if you know, if I could modestly say I was a, a, a six, uh, hoping to be a six and a half. Yeah, you know, let's say she was a, a nine, just so you get a sense of the the monumental task I I set in front of myself. <laughs> Secondly, I didn't know her. She was just somebody who worked in the company in a different department. So I'll shorten the story just to say lucky things happened, and against all odds, my affirmation came true. So, I thought to myself, as everybody would in this situation well it 's not really the affirmation that worked that would be crazy, right because even though it was a whole bunch of ridiculous coincidences that put us in the same place you know uh, at the same time, I mean you wouldn 't believe the the number of them, and i, I won 't tell them here because they 're just too many, but in the end, it was almost like we were fated to meet all right now i don 't believe in that." But it just felt like that. That's the experience. So I said to myself, well, I guess I've misinterpreted this. And really what happened is I'm not a six and a half. Damn it. I must be her level. <laughs> or, or, or maybe maybe I'm a seven and a half. And maybe she's a nine, but she's got you know poor self-image. So she didn't know it. So maybe that's all that happened, right? So I said, well, I'm going to have to try something else. So I said, all right, I'll try an affirmation of I'll get rich in the stock market. Now, that's kind of a crazy thing to ask for, especially if you don't even have a stock uh, brokerage account open, and if you don't have any money to invest. I think I was you know, a poor banking uh, person, a banker that was. And so I started doing that affirmation, and after about a week, I literally woke up in the middle of the night, sat straight up in my bed with a thought firmly in my head that I should buy stock in Chrysler, <laughs> now, time, I don't remember the year, but if, you know, if you went through the historical records, it was when Chrysler was uh, flirting with completely going out of business. who was, I don't know if they were officially bankrupt, but they were, they were, uh, the government had pumped them up and most observers were saying, you know, this is sort of the, the company that's circling the drain. So it didn't seem like a good idea, and but I tried to open my Schwab account anyway and pursue it just to see. You know, we're still in A/B testing here to see if this is real. But the paperwork got mixed up, and it took weeks to sort it out. And I didn't get my account opened. And in the meantime, the stock starts rising. Yeah, you know, I think it went up ten or twenty percent in the time that I wasted trying to open my account. So I thought to myself, "Damn, I, I was kind of right." You know, I mean, I picked a pretty good stock. But you know my timings were off, so I guess the affirmation thing wasn't really working. So I didn't buy that stock. If you if you go back, you'll find out it continued to go up because it turns out Chrysler did a turnaround. It was one of the great business success stories of all time. I knew nothing about that except you know the headline news um, before I th- I came up with this idea. In other words, there was no story I read. No analyst was ahead of it. It just came from nowhere, or so is or so it seemed. But I, I lost out because I didn't trust it. I guess. Right. I didn't buy and it became kind of the story stock of the year. Right. So I tried it one more time. I said uh I think I'll try to uh you know buy one more stock and I did the affirmations and one day I pick up the newspaper and I just had this feeling and I opened it up and there's a uh, back in the day when a, a company was going public they would sometimes put a uh, a big notice in the newspaper and it was a company called Ask Computer ASK or Ask Software I forget but there were a new tech company back before tech was anything and I said hey I'm going to invest in this company I just feel it put in some money I think it went up, I don't know, ten percent in a week or whatever it was. I thought, Woo woo, woo, I'm a genius. I think I invested about a thousand dollars, might have made a hundred, which was big money for a week of doing nothing. You know, when you're when you're not making enough money to save money. Making a hundred dollars for nothing seemed like a big deal. So I'm thinking, Man, I am so smart. Sold my stock and that frickin' stock went to the moon after (laughs) it. and now I've got these three these three data points, right? And the only thing that stopped me from the two doing very well for me is that I didn't stay with them. So I said, well, it would be dumb if this thing actually has something to it to set another goal that's relatively modest. <laughs> right? right, yeah. So, so there was another thing I did first. Let, let me insert that before I went big. I, I also made a bet with somebody that I would take the, uh, the GMATs, the test you take to get into a good school for your MBA. Um, because I'd taken them right after I'd finished my four-year degree, and I'd got, I think, the 77th percentile, which is nowhere near enough to get into a school like Berkeley, which, which would make a difference in my career. So I made a bet with somebody who was going to take a prep course. They were going to try to Uh, raise their score, uh, into, from the 80s into something, perhaps the, the 90s, uh, in order to get into a good school, again, like Berkeley. So, I made a bet, and I don't know why I made this bet, it was just stupid in retrospect. I bet that I would raise my score from 77th percentile to whatever was her new best score. So I would beat not only her other score, which already beat me by over 10 points, I think, or maybe, you know, she was in the high 80s, I think. But I thought I would beat her new score and I wasn't going to take a test preparation course. I was just going to take some, you know, practice tests uh, on my own at home. So I did that, but I, I paired it with the affirmation. And then uh, I also visualized, which is part of the process they tell you to do, very specifically what my score would look like On the exact document, I knew I would get because I had taken this test before years earlier, and so I would imagine that in that little box where the the cumulative score was, I would see the the number ninety four, and so I just kept you know focusing on ninety four because I figured that would be close enough that if I got anywhere in that range, um, you know, then I'm probably going to get into a good school if I want to. So we take the test. I, my, every one of my practice tests, I got about the same as the first time I took it, somewhere in the high 70s, uh, percentile. I take the test, felt exactly the same as all the practice tests, I didn't feel like I was having a good day or anything. Weeks pass, the test shows up in the mail, I go to the mailbox, I open the mail. And I opened that letter, and it's the same same kind of format that I'd visualized, so I knew exactly what it looked like, and I looked down into the little box where, for weeks, I had been visualizing the number 94, and I looked at it, and the fucking thing said 94, <laughs> all right?
0: This, uh, yeah, this was so, after the stock market experience?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm getting my timing mixed up. It was in there, somewhere something. roughly in that period, right? So... I literally sat there in my little uh, mold-covered, literally, apartment in San Francisco in the Haight District. I sat in a chair, and I stared forward for hours. <laughs> and all night long, I would, I would say to myself, I don't think I just saw that. And then I would reach over to my table and pick up the, the little uh, report, and I would look at it again, and I would make sure I was scouring the document and not reading like a date or a, you know a serial number or something, right? <laughs> And it was right, and I'd put it down, and then I would just repeat that process for hours. And at the end of it, I said, I think I'm going to set my sights higher. And it wasn't long after I decided to start the affirmation, my um, Scott Adams would become a famous cartoonist. So, I mean, it was, there were some years that, that passed in between, and then some other affirmations. But that's that's essentially the the path I took. So, the odds of becoming a uh, famous cartoonists. Uh, I think about 2,000 people submit packages to the the big syndicates, the people who give you the big contract, your big break. Um, uh, They might pick a half dozen of them. Of those half dozen, most of them will not make it after a year or two. So it's uh, very rare. In fact, Dilbert was probably one of the, you know, I think the biggest breakout, or one of the biggest in 20 years.
0: And t- just to to look at the affirmations, I, I have a number of questions about this, and then I want to ask you about God's debris also, because I, I think this is maybe there's an interesting tie-in. But oh, if I could, because I think your
1: your listeners want to hear this. I know it's to sure. interrupt you here, but no,
0: no, interrupt all you want.
1: The the two other affirmations that are notable was um, I said that I would become a number one best-selling author before I'd ever written a book. And I'd never taken a a class in writing, you know, except a a one I think a two-day course in business writing, and that was it. And The Dilbert Principle became the number one best-selling book. The next time I used it, because after that, pretty much everything I wanted, I got, you know, right? Because with success, you don't need the affirmation so much because just everything starts uh, being attracted to you automatically. But... There was a period, and I know you're going to ask about this later, where I lost my voice. Right. Couldn't speak for three and a half years. That's the we'll spasmodic about that li- dysphonia, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that later, I think. But uh, that was the the next time I used affirmations. And the affirmation was, I, Scott Adams, will speak perfectly. Now, I realize I don't speak perfectly. But with, when we get to that story, you'll see that uh, there's more to it.
0: And if, if we were to look at just the the mechanics of these affirmations, are you sitting down in the morning and writing down 15 lines, kind of like Bart Simpson on the chalkboard, on a piece of paper? H- how exactly were you doing it? And then um, how do you ex- it, it how no personally explain it? Experiment- exactly. <laughs> yeah. I will start by saying, well, I'll tell you exactly how
1: I did it. But then I also tell you that I'm positive the exact method doesn't matter. I think what matters is the degree of focus and the commitment you have to that focus, right? Because the last affirmation I mentioned was uh, primarily done in my head while driving, but uh, con- you know, continuously for years. You know, about three years. Um, So the way I did it back in those times was I used a, you know, pencil or a pen and a piece of paper and I wrote, uh, the same sentence 15 times, uh, once a day, I think. I mean, there would be nothing wrong with doing it twice a day except it's twice as hard. So I, I don't think there's a reason that you should do it twice a day. I don't know if 15 is magic. I'm sure 10 would get you there. 20 might be better, but I doubt it. I don't think it matters. And by the way, these are the questions everybody asks me all the time. You know, do you save the piece of paper? No. <laughs> all right, you don't save the paper. The paper is irrelevant. Um, if you type it, I'm positive you'll get the same result. I don't know if this works. I mean, again, I'm not telling you that affirmations is a thing that actually happens as opposed to a perception that you have, but I'm sure the perception at least would be the same if you were typing it as opposed to writing it. So I think all of the details don't matter. Here's why I think it seems to work, and there are several possibilities for that. One is something uh, I learned long ago, and I forget who coined it, but uh, have you ever heard the phrase reticular activation? I have, Yeah, yeah. So it's basically the idea that it's easy to hear your own name Spoken in a crowd. All right. So you, you'll hear background noise. Blah, 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 Tim Ferriss. Blah, 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 and you're like, how did I hear that one thing in this whole bunch of crowd noise? So basically, your brain is incapable of of processing everything in its environment or even coming close. So the best it can do is set up these little filters, and the way it sets its filters is by what you pay attention to, right? It's what you spend the most energy on. It's how you focus your memory. That's how you set your filter. So your filter is automatically set for your name because that's just you know, the thing that <clears throat> matters most to you. But you can use these affirmations presumably – this is just a hypothesis – to focus your mind and, and your memory on a very specific thing, and that would allow you to notice things in your environment that might have already been there. It's just that your filter was set to ignore, and then you just tune it through this memory and repetition trick until it widens a little bit to allow, allow some extra stuff in. Now, uh, there's some science to back that. Dr. Richard Wiseman uh, did some studies on luck and he was trying to find out if people actually have real luck. You know, Can they guess the future better than other people? And the answer, as you might guess, and I'm sure the people listening to this podcast are all rationalists and skeptics, and you know that he found nothing, right? Nobody can guess random events better than other people. But he did another test which I'll shorten here, but the the idea was that uh, people who expected to be lucky, the people who labeled themselves lucky and looked for luck everywhere, we're a little bit better at finding it. In other words, just actually noticing it in the environment. So, if your filter is tuned to this thought, "Hey, I think there's something out there, lucky. Let me look for it." Where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? Where's there's Waldo? All right, you're going to find a little bit more and more often than the guy who says there was nothing to look for. I already know everything's going to go wrong. I'll tell you tomorrow. Tomorrow going to be me going wrong. Bad day, Eeyore? All right? So. That guy's just not looking for anything. Right. So that, now, let me give you an anecdote to tie that together. During the time I was telling myself I wanted to be, you know, a cartoonist, how do you do that? Like, you, know, where this was pre-internet, I didn't know where to search for it. I didn't know anybody. Um, I came home and I noticed, all right, I noticed something I'd never seen before. Maybe it had always been there. I don't know, but I noticed a, car, a show, a TV show about how to become a cartoonist. And I wrote to the host of the show and asked him for some advice. He gave it to me, short story, uh, even shorter. Um, that set me on the road to, to know how to you know buy the book that I needed and, and submit my materials and, and that sort of thing. Now, you could say, well, that was just a coincidence because maybe that show only aired once, and uh, I think it was on public TV, so it actually probably aired lots of times. But… Um, there might have been other things i would have noticed you know it wasn't just that one thing i could have noticed i might have noticed other things that would have sent me on a different path but also toward this this thing i'd been focusing on right now the other possibility um, every rational person in the audience is screaming you know at their uh, at their speaker right now you idiot this is selective memory. Um, what, what's really happening is there are lots of times that you were focusing on things and doing affirmations, and you just you just freaking forgot those times. Right. It's a it survivorship
0: bias, right? right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I say absolutely, that's mm-hmm. completely possible, all right? But I just told you my story, and I can tell you that I don't have a memory in all of those years of trying it when it didn't work. I do have plenty of memories of when it hadn't worked yet <laughs> like i said the the voice problem took year 's um, and yeah, you know, I suppose if I were uh, doing one in particular right now, uh, that I could say it hadn 't happened yet so so there 's that, um, but there 's also just the fact that um, it may be a self identification thing, and what I mean by that is. Uh, I, I have a view that we're mostly moist robots in the sense that <laughs> uh, you know the, the environment uh, is programming us, and you know we've got a little DNA that's like our operating system. But basically, you know, you start with that, and the, it can't vary a lot, right? Your DNA is a little bit, a uh, little bit of a, a window of how much your, yeah, you know, your nature can change, but that's like a computer, right? And then the environment uh, programs it within its parameters. So you got that going on. So you got. A person who's, who's getting, you know, programmed by their environment, but they don't know that, right? They think they're making decisions and using their free will. So it could be that all that's happening is that a person who is willing to write down their goal 15 times a day has in their dis- at their disposal, without necessarily knowing it, a, a subconscious that is totally on their side. In other words, there's something in the subconscious that is overriding the conscious and saying, you know, Scott, we're going to do this thing you haven't figured it out yet all right but i'm doing the affirmations doing the affirmations so what i'm what i'm suggesting is it's not the affirmations that are making something happen this thing is going to happen because my subconscious already decided that I have these objectives, I have these goals, and I'm going to chew through a frickin' wall to make these happen, right? And I have some capability, so I can, I can chew. You know, I'm a good chewer. So maybe all that's happening is that a person like me who has a subconscious that's guiding him toward this very specific outcome is also the same person who is willing to write it down 15 times. So in other words, the causation is exactly backwards from how it looks. Uh, I'm already that person who's going to make this happen, and I'm also by coincidence a person who's so intent on it that I'll try anything. And one of those things just happens to be writing stuff down fifteen times.
0: Right. Well, it's it's uh, it's like looking at parents and who credit being good parents with buying books A, B, and C. And you're like, well, maybe it's just that the people who are predisposed to being good parents are the same people who are likely to buy a bunch of books and study.
1: <laughs> How do yeah, and maybe, really and maybe, just maybe, I've got three siblings who were raised in identical situations, and we all turned out completely different. Like you just say that to anybody and watch them get the dough in the head, you know, headlights look like, okay, you just change everything I know about life. I will now erase that.
0: Yeah. But but I do think that, you, you, (laughs) you know, you bring up a couple of really important topics and, and I think helpful lenses through which to view behavior. So the first is, uh, this, this potential combination of, uh, optimism and, uh, being an opportunist, which I think perhaps the uh, affirmations triggers, right? So for instance, people might say, well, the people who go to Silicon Valley are more successful because they're driven, they go to Silicon Valley, they build tech companies and so on. Uh, I would argue there's probably more to that story. And one plausible explanation is people in Silicon Valley believe certain impossibles are possible Whereas they wouldn't be in a peer group elsewhere that would support that, right? So they're encouraged to try these things that would see doomed, seem doomed to fail in many other parts of the world. And if you're able to achieve that uh, in isolation by using these affirmations, then you have this sort of uh, naive optimism that then provides you with this, uh, like you said, selective attention and optimism where you'll, you'll, you'll write to the host of the TV show, right? It's kind of like the sixth sense and noticing the red doorknob (laughs) or you buy a new car and then you go out and you see the new car everywhere. It's not that everyone went out and bought the same car to be like you. It's that you're now noticing it. How did you decide to write what, write, uh, God's debris? What was, what is the story behind that? Because when I, when I ping my audience to ask what they would like to know from you, Um, Many people are familiar with Dilbert. I would suspect a lot of people are probably not familiar with God's Debris, but the the premise and everything about the book is really fascinating. Could you describe how that how that came about?
1: Yeah. Um, for the readers not, or the listeners not uh, familiar with uh, God's Debris, um, that's a non-humor, non-Dilbert book I wrote um, 2001, I think. And it's a, essentially a conversation between a delivery man and the um, smartest person in the world um, that he meets by accident, he thinks. And the challenge of the book Was to write in the, in the voice of someone who is allegedly the smartest person in the world. Someone who literally knows everything. Now the problem is, since I don't know everything, you know, how do you figure out that out? So that my writer solution was a version of Occam's razor, sort of a bastardized version in which I simply had the alleged smartest person in the world say the things that seemed like the simplest explanations. And it turns out, When you read the simplest explanation, even if it's not what you were, you know, already set to believe or already did believe, it's very compelling anyway. It's just one of those ways your brain is wired that simplicity looks compelling, you know, i.e. Ronald Reagan, i.e. Donald Trump, simplicity is always compelling. But the larger part, you know, the, the content of the book, and this won't mean as much to the people who haven't read it, but it'll mean a whole bunch to the people who have. You're probably wondering, how the hell does anybody think of those different ideas and have them fit together in the same book? Uh, that's one of the questions I get asked the most. And the answer is, you don't do it intentionally, all right? That stuff does not happen because you had a plan. That book is the result of literally uh, my lifetime up to that point. It was 40-ish years, I forget. Um, and all the strange thoughts I'd had and one specific moment in my shower at which I realized, holy hell, these are all the same idea. And they they have a theme which I can now weave them together into one grand idea Which, if I put it in the voice of someone, not myself, you know, and put it in the form of fiction, it will give the reader the same feeling that I had when the sense came to me in the shower, where I got a a full body tingle, I felt like maybe everything I knew was wrong, Um, not really, but, you know, I'm talking about a sensation, just, you know, a feeling, and I thought, is there any way to package that, you know, is there a way to write that down, so somebody could get that feeling I had in the shower, when I took things from left field, right field, and married orange with the number 12, and explained to you why it's all really the same thing, right? Could I make somebody have that experience? So that's what I, what I tried to do with the book. And I used throughout it a lot of techniques that I learned in hypnosis classes, uh, to strengthen the, you know, the impact. And in the forward, I, I, give the reader uh, you know, plenty of clues that this is a, a thought experiment. It's not a, a typical novel. It's not a, a story like they're, they're used to.
0: And what what were some of the techniques from hypnosis that, that you implemented?
1: Oh, would that if I told you, would it be a spoiler?
0: Um, <laughs> that's okay. Well, if it gives away the so, plot line, I'm just curious or maybe the broader question is how have you incorporated? Yeah, let me, because let, I'm, I'm a a, a uh, and uninformed uh, when it comes to hypnosis. Okay. I, don't, I don't know anything about it, so I'd be just very curious uh, how you've Im- implemented hypnosis into your life. I suppose so, it's a broader question.
1: Yeah, so first of all, um, the way I use hypnosis is too broadly for the public. You know, so Most people are thinking of you a know, stage hypnotist and something they saw in a movie where somebody was programmed to kill the president or something. Um, I, I'm not talking about any of that stuff or or anything that involves a trance. Right. I'm talking about uh, the science of persuasion stuff that science tested and things that are pretty well known and understood. So I'll give you one example just to illustrate it. My challenge when I have a book that's uh, most of it is two people talking is that you'll get bored, right? Right. So I need to continually put you in the place of one of the characters. You can't be in the place of the smartest person in the world. <laughs> you know, because by definition you just can't get there, right? But you can be in the place of the person who's listening to it and not buying it. There's no way you can buy it in its unfinished form, right? It's like somebody's, it's sort of like, um, uh, what's the game that you doodle and people try to guess your doodle? Uh, Pictionary. Pictionary, Pictionary. Pictionary. yeah. So you, you need a certain amount of clues before anybody's gonna get it, right? Nobody gets it on the first line. So that's, that was the, the experience I was going for, is that, you know, you get it. I, I completely lost my train of thought thinking about Pictionary, because...
0: <laughs> we, uh, we were talking about persuasion and hypnosis. And... Oh, okay, so, right. The method I used was um,
1: whenever the world's smartest person said something that I knew everyone reading it would think, oh, God, there's 10 obvious reasons why that's stupid. I would just have the person say, I think there's 10 obvious reasons why that's stupid. No, um, paraphrasing myself but uh, in other words i make i make my character say the thing you just thought right right, right. so that's a that's a little different than uh, trish, traditional fiction where i'm making the character lead you all the way mm-hmm. so um so this is a, a technique in hypnosis you would call it pacing and leading in persuasion you have other names for it but the idea is um i'm you So I would match you in some way. If you were doing a standard induction, the way you would match somebody would be matching their breathing, matching their level of maybe anxiety or the way they talk. You might try to pick the same language type they use. You know, if somebody uses, you know, angry words and war words, you'd start out using them. That's pacing. So you're matching them so they feel comfortable with you. They bond with you. They link to you. Your your brains kind of become like psychologically linked. You know, if, if one person pulls, the other one feels a tug. Right. Just the way any relationship is, right? It's just the normal way any two people act uh, when they're together. So, so all you're doing is setting up a thing where you're pacing and then that sets them up for the leading because the leading in this case is something so outrageously unexpected that um, without the the leading I could never take them to the new place.
0: It's, like a, it's, a, it's a lot like judo, actually, in, in so much as when you're connected to someone, first you have to tether with the hand grips. And then once you've done that, you, you try to lead your opponent into a pattern that you are leading like a dance so that you can control where they step with either foot. And at that point, you can control, it, you can control imbalancing, right? So you can, you can then do with them whatever you want once they've kind of entrained their stepping pattern. Uh, to yours, which sounds pretty similar. Um, God, do you know know how much that makes me want to go wrestle somebody (laughs) right? It's amazing. Oh, the foot sweeps in judo are just beautiful. I mean, so elegant.
1: You know, I've never heard that explanation of judo, which instantly makes me interested in it, and I had no interest in it whatsoever before. So,
0: nicely done. Uh, Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. Judo is, uh, especially if people search foot sweeps, judo foot sweeps on YouTube, for instance, it's just one of the most... Beautiful demonstrations of paired physics, where uh, where one person is using an opponent's energy against them, uh, but uh, it can certainly have, par- I think, have a lot of parallels in uh, conversation and just human interaction. Uh, the the how are you how are you introduced to hypnosis? You took this class that you'd mentioned, but what uh, what sparked your interest, and for those people who are not familiar with hypnosis and have only seen the stage performers and so on, um, how do you sniff out someone who's truly a master at hypnosis? And maybe that's too broad, maybe there are a bunch of different types, and how do you sniff out kind of the charlatans that you shouldn't really pay? Much attention to <laughs>
1: did, did you uh, did you read my uh, blog on Trump? I'm not sure if you're asking oh. it. I, I don't know if you're. No, asking I haven't.
0: It. I'm not. i am not oh. leading in this case. Okay, so,
1: so that was the most accidentally um, perfect question anybody ever asked. So <laughs> <laughs> done. Let me so let nice. me start at the beginning. The uh, my mother. Delivered, gave birth to uh, my little sister while under hypnosis, and did not use any painkillers. She did not feel pain, and she was awake the whole time. That's incredible. Now, now, just like I, I left a dramatic pause after that, but I forgot we're doing a podcast, and everybody went to check their equipment. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but the uh, but that had a huge impact on me. Um, so it turns out our family doctor was a trained hypnotist, and you know he handled the birth and he just offered her that option. Now, uh, let me be quick to point out that there's sort of a, a rule of one in five in hypnosis, and that is that one in five people are are able to go into a um, a state, that is that extreme. In, in other words, somebody who could simply block pain or somebody who could see something that wasn't really in the room. Now keep in mind that in all these cases, these people are completely aware and awake and they can stop the sensation any way they want, anytime they want. But you know, if you're given birth, you're not going to be going out of your way to stop the sensation of stopping pain, right? <laughs> so, so it's not, nobody's controlling you. It's more like a coach working with a, you know, an elite player. You know, the coach is not doing it. The coach is saying, you know, hey, you know, crossover dribble, you know, go under your leg, left, jog right. So that had a huge impact on me. And so it got me interested in in that and other things. And so when I was in my 20s and I realized that a guy who works at a bank teller and has drives a car, which uh, one girlfriend uh, affectionately <laughs> – oh, she had a terrible name for it, but I can't say it on the air. Oh, sure. You can, uh,
0: you can, of course you can say it.
1: No, but I, I realize there's a reason, not because it's a profanity. I just uh-huh. can't say it. Okay,
0: no problem. Uh, just to trade, my I had a hand-me-down van from my mom, and the back seats were stolen, so all my coworkers started calling it the Molester Mobile. That was the nickname <laughs> for my car. <laughs> uh, okay, you went on the car. Uh, so anyway, I thought –
1: I need an edge, you know, career-wise, you know, dating-wise. And if there's anything to this, at the very least, I'm terribly curious about what it is and what it isn't. And, you know, you figure your mother's not going to lie to you about childbirth. I mean, not something that became like a a central story of your youth. You know, it was kind of a a big deal. It doesn't seem like the thing she would have made up. So credibility was high. And I thought, well, let me check this thing out. But I, again, 20% of the people can have that kind of experience. Uh, And the family doctor, obviously, um, you become trained in quickly identifying who those people are so he knew um but all the rest of the people can get uh substantial benefits so unfortunately i'm i'm in the you know the 80 percent that can't get those extreme benefits but the the stuff i can get is immense um and it includes you know the ability to uh craft a book the way i did it includes a lot of technique i use uh for making dilbert popular for example um The reason Dilbert has no last name, the reason you don 't know what town he lives in you don 't know the name of his company and here 's a first for a comic strip I think the the second main character is the boss in terms of you know time on on screen uh and he doesn 't have any name at all <laughs> right. and and that all that all all comes out of uh, hypnosis training, and what I do is I allow the the reader. To imbue the characters with as much of what they love as they possibly can without giving them a, a hard stop. So, in other words, if I said, uh, this is, uh, Dilbert Goldberg, all right, all of the, you know, the anti Semites would say, well, you know, I don't really relate to that Goldberg guy. Right. Uh, you know, if, 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 any name you give him, somebody's, somebody's going to be a hater, right? So you're, you're taking people out of the equation as soon as you name him. Maybe it's a the name they've heard of. And then, oh, and there's a reason why it's Dilbert and not Bob,
0: you know, it's It's a uh, pre-existing association.
1: So all of that is uh, just classic, uh, well-understood hypnosis training. But again, I'm not not hypnotizing the audience. I'm simply giving them a better product. So uh, keep in mind that when I talk about hypnosis, I include things like, um, you know, negotiating, obviously selling, marketing, but also design, product design.
0: Sorry to pause you, but I just love to ask because I think like most people, when I think hypnosis, I think for the purpose of overcoming pain being as stiff as a board between two chairs etc what how would you define hypnosis then in this case because I'm, I'm listening to what you're describing and I'm like wow okay you, you have elements of like the uh, narrative structure storytelling persuasion negotiation it covers a lot of bases so oh. h- how do you define hypnosis
1: so the simplest um, and I think everybody has ends up with their own definition of it if they if they have any experience with it because I don't think there's any one definition everybody's going to agree with. Mm-hmm. For me, it is uh, forming a connection with either one person, or if you're doing it, you know, to a group. If you're trying to persuade a group, you're you're connecting to the group. You're getting this sort of you know pacing and leading thing going on. You're building trust, and then you're using uh, usually words are sort of the programming language, you know, if you will. Linguistics are the the user interface for this moist uh, robot uh, that we are. Um, so if you want to program your head, you pick words. Um, if any of you saw a recent, it went viral recently, there was an article in The Onion, in which it was just this funny article about a couple who allegedly uh, used their complete despair and hopelessness as the thing that bound, bound them together. Uh, but it was the most masterfully written thing. I wish I could you know, uh, uh, tell you the writer's name, but the choice of words puts you in a completely different mental state. It's just uh, the most brilliant word choice in a piece of writing you'll see. And I try to do that too. So when I'm writing, and I don't know if you use the same method, there's, there's, I write in layers. So you know, there's first draft, second draft, but somewhere toward the end, the final layer, I look at every word I use, and I say, is there, is there a word that will work on an emotional level? Or a different level, or just a more perfect level—something that will make you remember it, something that'll uh, keep you awake—that means exactly the same thing. So here's an example: If I said to the audience, and I, I do this in front of crowds, so you know you at home can play along and, and shout out the answer, but I already know the answer, I'm going to give you two words that mean about the same. You tell me out loud, and Tim, you can play along. Just say the say the one of the two words—they both mean about the same. That's the funnier one. Which one is funnier? Pull or yank? Yank. Yeah, and everybody, everybody at home just said the same thing, right? So, language um, does have that much specific control over the way you think. And so, uh, you know, science and Uh, Hypnosis uh, uh, was kind of a precursor to a lot of the studies that have borne out a lot of what hypnotists found by trial and error that you can manipulate the brain by what people concentrate on, what words you put in there, what you make them focus on. you know, what you tie to their habits uh, there 's just lots of ways that you can you can program the, the, the box
0: well I, th- I mean language is is mind control right i mean you can you can very easily make people think any number of things or feel any number of things by using this sort of symbology that've uh, that, that we 've that we've created known as language and i 've just been so Fascinated by that for so long. Do you find then is writing an indirect way of developing the skill sets that would make you a fast learner in hypnosis, or or do they not? Does it not really pour over that cleanly?
1: I would say that learning to be a writer, you're only going to maybe brush accidentally on the level that I'm even talking about. Got it. Like like, like everybody knows, hey, that's a good word, but you, you need to go to the next level. You know, if you're saying to yourself, "I am putting together a logical argument, and this word is the perfect word for my argument because it, it means the best thing." Because remember, in my my example, "yank" and "pull" aren't really the same thing, are they? No, they're not, right? Because you got a different sense, and that's why one was funnier. You know, but it also had a Y in it, and it had a K in it, so there, you know, had two levels of funniness built into the word. So I will consciously make a choice to get rid of, of a more accurate word to instill to put in a word that has more of a programming control hmm. right because uh, you want people to have an experience because that's what they're going to remember they're not going to remember what word choice you used right this dovetails exactly into my Loud defense of Donald Trump's methods, which I've been writing about all week on the internet.
0: (laughs) I've seen, I've seen some of the some of the fireworks. (laughs) So, Uh please tell, say more. Uh, uh, Let
1: me draw a line for you. That um, I'll say in advance: this is conspiracy uh, talk. You know, conspiracy theory talk. So, so you don't have to say it. None of the listeners have to tell me that. So it's just for fun. Um, There is a connection between Donald Trump and me. There is an individual between us. That individual happens to be the father of hypnosis, Milton Erickson. Milton Erickson. Milton Erickson, um, a name known only to people who study hypnosis usually or psychology. So he was a linguist who who put a lot of this – I'm not sure if he was a linguist, but he put a lot of this stuff together, mostly by instinct I think in the beginning. One of his – and his school – is the school of hypnosis that I ended up going to. It was a different school with a few differences, but basically I grew out of that. Also out of the Erickson School is um, a couple of uh, people, like John Grinder, I think, hope I didn't get the name wrong, who developed uh, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is a way to use uh, largely words as a programming language, although they don't market it that way. Now, NLP is marketed with a lot of stuff that I don't buy into. But there's a core of it that comes from hypnosis, which, um, matches pretty exactly with what, uh, scientific studies and, you know, current psychology would expect, right? So there's, there's a part of it that's real strong and powerful, but it's probably the minority of it. I mean, most of it is, you know, <clears throat> people being stiff as boards between two chairs and, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, now, the best practicer, most famous practitioner of NL- NLP, the person who got his inspiration from it, is Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins it has been um, a business associate with Donald Trump. They work together on some kind of program about success. You can see their videos of them talking one after another. If you Google them, you see them standing together on Google Images, uh, etc. Now – I have no reason to believe that they ever had a conversation on the methods of persuasion. All right. I think Trump is first of all a natural, because he's he's been doing it for a long time. But if you look at his recent work that has Erickson's fingerprints all the <laughs> all over it. <laughs> Let me give you an example. And I wrote about this, so if you want to see the details is at you know Dilbert.com and my blog. But uh, take the debate where um, he came in as the underprepared buffoon who was going to blow himself up, and Megyn Kelly of Fox News decided that, yes, that's exactly what was going to happen, and she started right out with the, uh, did you say all these bad things about women, quote. Now, every other politician would have been smeared off the stage by that because all, it, it wouldn't matter what he said back, right? It wouldn't matter what the response was because the question itself, like so NLP, priming, right. yeah, the, the question is the content, all right? The the logic of the answer the you know, maybe somebody said oh that was taken out of context or whatever which is what people usually say and it usually is I mean that's actually usually true but the the public isn't going to hear that they're just going to hear the feeling that they felt when Megyn Kelly said that person's name bad to women and that, that's really like the beginning and the end of the thinking for you know let's say at least twenty percent of the public right about the same twenty percent that can easily be hypnotized coincidentally. So, but what did Trump do? As soon as that question came up, he semi interrupted her and he said, Only Rosie O'Donnell. That, my friends, is hypnosis. He took an anchor that everybody could visualize and his core audience already had a negative impression. Their negative impression of Rosie O'Donnell almost certainly was bigger, stronger, and visual and more important than whatever Megyn Kelly just said. Which should have been a full house, right? Yep. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she showed him four kings and he beat her hand and he did it without even trying. <laughs> and he did it with a method which is well understood, right? This is a negotiating technique. You know, you throw down an anchor, you divert everybody and so instead of becoming this you know, sexist, which he could have been on day one, he became the straight talker. Yeah, He's the guy he, – he, and in, he admitted in the very next sentence that he would also said bad things about other women.
0: He, he has some really interesting – Oh, but wait. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Wait. There, there's a better part.
1: I uh, think it's better. I'm ready. Now, I know you follow the headlines, so you know what happened next. Roger Ailes of Fox News, um, you know, weighed in to say, like, we're going to need to pay- make peace, right, with Donald Trump, because, um, you know, this is getting out of hand. And Donald Trump made peace with him. How do you interpret that? I'll tell you how I interpret it. I, I interpret it as Donald Trump just bought Fox News without paying a freaking penny, because if he wants them, if they want him to appear on his show, That's up to him, and he just proved he doesn't need them. So he's going to get all the press he wants without Fox News. If they want to get on the program and support the guy who's probably going to be the nominee, that's that's what I've predicted um, because of his hypnosis sp- skills in particular, having nothing to do with his policies. By the way, I'll get to that. Uh, you know, I'm not a not a fan of the policies, but I don't think he is either. He's, he's just you know, they're opening negotiating gambits as as he does. So he effectively um, changed the debate, became the straight talker, took control of Fox News. All in one day. And all of that is, is straight out of, you know, the hypnotist playbook. Although it's, you know, he would call it persuasion. He might call it negotiating. He literally wrote the book, The, the Art of the Deal. Let me show this to you again so you see the pattern. Some of you saw his immigration plan. That's like the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's like, build a giant fence. Make Mexico pay for it as if they want to do that. Um, round up 11 million Mexicans who have been in the country for a while and send it back. Change the constitution to get rid of their birthright. Alright, I'm saying it with my mocking voice. Right. But, um, you know, then I'm going to re- reverse it around and tell you that if you, if, if you evaluate him as a politician, which is what the political writers are all doing incorrectly right now, that's the most ridiculous bag of shit anybody ever proposed to the country because it has no chance of, of happening in that form, right? It's just not going to happen. But he's not a politician. He's a businessman, and he's a hypnotist, and he just gave you an anchor. And his anchor is, look at what I'm gonna do. Everybody get excited. Let's talk about changing the Constitution. Let's talk about the cost and the, and the heartbreak and the, and the misery that would cause to these 11 million people. I'm planning to, I'm proposing we kick out of the country. Let's talk about how expensive that fence is. And then, when he gets to negotiate with Congress, guess what he gives off? He gives away. Because the only thing he wanted was the fence. Right? (laughs) The only thing he wanted was the fence. But, Can you say in your plan, I'm going to give everybody a free pass after we build the fence? No, because that makes immigration explode for the 10 years it takes you to build a fence. So you have to get there the way he got there, and it's the way a businessman would do it. You come in with this ridiculous first offer. You'd make all the idiots in the media who think he's a politician, even though he screams that he's not. I mean he wrote a book on this stuff. <laughs> you, you know, it was a number one, I think it was a number one bestseller, right? He could not be more clear or mo- more honest about what he's doing as he does it. But it's still invisible because you're looking at him as a politician and saying if his goal – is to do this thing. It's a stupid goal. He's not going to kick out 11 million people. Nobody's going to nobody's going to go for that. That's not the game. It will never be the game. I almost guarantee you that if he gets approval to build the fence, he'll probably get some Mexican funding, not completely, but enough it'll be enough to say, look, nobody else was even going to ask for half, right? All right? I got you half of this paid for. If he does that, People are going to wet their pants, right? And then he's going to say, I guarantee it. He's going to say – and now this imagines he gets nominated and becomes president, and so I guess I can't guarantee anything. But, But if it got to this situation, the likely outcome would be that he'd say, look, yeah, that 11 million people, yeah, I guess it would be hard to round them up. Why don't we say that if you stay in a jail for X number of years, you pay your taxes, you register, you do some useful things that uh, you know, uh, will make an exception in your case just for practicality, because that's what a business person does. And by the way, I got my fence built. Now my brand, brand America, is exclusive for the first time, and that's why you hired me. You hired me to be a brand manager. You didn't hire me to, you know, to, to tell the truth on my first offer. You offered me to negotiate. He's, he's literally running for the office of negotiator-in-chief and practicing his craft, and he's doing it with such brilliance that I've, I've literally – I don't think I've ever seen anybody do it this well, except, oh, I can think of one other person. Um, let's see. Um, There was Bill Clinton, who also is a good friend of Tony Robbins.
0: (laughs) I love the web. It's like six six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Yeah. And by the
1: way, and so I'll say this at the end because I went on for a while. Uh, I'm not suggesting that there's a grand conspiracy there um it, it's a fact that all those things are connected that doesn't mean that you know the the influence is running through them in some one way direction like i described if you use that as a, as a possible one of your filters to explain what's going on with the trump campaign i uh, i just read in the news a, a writer saying uh, essentially nobody understands why he's rising in the polls <laughs> and and i'm saying exactly and you won't understand either
0: yeah i think it's also uh hard sometimes for for people particularly in the day-to-day news cycle just the churn of constant noise uh, with hours that need to be filled on tv and pages that need to be filled in newspapers that you need attention right it's kind of like the the um glengarry glenn ross alec baldwin you know always be closing speech with the like attention interest desire action like you have to have the attention first and and donald trump is very good at doing that the the other technique that i had never seen and he uses it all the time but it doesn't seem to lose its efficacy it's one of these sort of guilty until proven innocent approaches or it's a retort uh which is he'll say check your facts Next question. And so <laughs> with any journalist and it throws them off balance just enough because they're like, oh, shit. Like, did my researchers miss, you know, the one citation that refuted everything that I'm actually laying on this particular person? And so whether it's, uh, you know, Matt Lauer or anyone else would be like, Matt, check your facts. Next question. <laughs> and it's just they're as good as dead. It's it's one of the uh-huh. most, it's uh-huh. It's. It's brilliant, and it's in in a way, and that's not to say that I would want you know Donald Trump running the country, but it's I do admire the the. Uh, but, so the ringmanship. If well,
1: yeah. Let me let, let me weigh on you on that for a moment. Look how many ways that could have been done incorrectly. Suppose he simply said, "Matt, your facts are wrong."
0: That's right. Totally, totally doesn't work. Totally different. Yeah. yeah. Totally different.
1: Check your facts. Is what I call the the high ground maneuver, which I also write about. Um, it's the same thing Jobs did when he explained away Antenna Gate just by saying, "All smartphones have problems." Um, we're trying to make our customers happy. He made a national story go away in, in uh, less than 30 seconds with those two sentences. Um, he took the high ground, and everybody said, oh, wait a minute. We've been talking about you. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess that's just kind of normal when you think about smartphones, and I'm sure glad I have a smartphone, so I guess that's just normal. So what Trump did, if you said your facts are wrong, then he set the world Matt Lauer against Donald Trump, and anybody who liked Matt Lauer better than Donald Trump? You know, the other going to side with him, but instead he said, "Check your facts." He said, "I'm a person with more information," which actually seems pretty consistent because, like, it's his world, right? Like we're talking about his facts. It's not Matt Lauer's facts. Matt Lauer's a guy who studied up ten minutes before the interview. <laughs> so you say you say that to me, and I just laugh and say, "Okay, I don't know what the truth is here, Donald, but probably you're right." Right? It's mm-hmm. just brilliant.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's really, really clever. I want to shift gears just for a second because I love this type of deconstruction and I'd love to chat a little bit about goals versus systems and just to hear you perhaps talk about some of how you think about your life in those terms or not. Yes.
1: Um, you want me to just jump right in and define those two things? Yes, just please.
0: That'd be gold. that'd be very helpful. All
1: right, so this is um, written in my book: "How to Fail at Almost uh, Everything and Still Win Big." And the idea is that if you have a, a goal um, goal oriented approach to the world. That that's an approach that made perfect sense 200 years ago if you were a farmer and you had a simple operation and you thought if you cleared another 10 acres before winter, you could grow more corn. You are almost certainly right. So clearing those 10 acres before winter was a perfectly good goal, and it made perfect sense to pursue it. But now fast forward, all right? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's modern times. There's probably – more technology, more complexity in your pocket right now in your smartphone than the farmer had in his entire operation. All right, Today, if you're focused on one thing for more than a minute and a half, there's a good chance that that thing is no longer worth having. All right? There are people going to school for degrees that won't mean anything even four years from now when they retire or when they get out of school. Um, so you, you've got people who are making plans with a clear focus in a world that no longer supports a clear path to anything. So what's the alternative in a world where you can't – if you can't predict the future and um, on top of that, even if you could predict it and you pick the goal and you march straight at it, when you got there, there's a really good chance that you would have said, you know, I didn't notice there were five other goals that were way better than this one because they emerged while you were focusing on your goal, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're not keeping your eye on the, on the whole of it and if you're not playing the odds and you're picking a, you know, a moonshot as your way to go through life, you, you know, you're going to feel like you're failing not only if you miss the moon, but you're going to feel like a failure all the way to the moon because you haven't gotten the moon yet and you're not quite sure if you're going to get there. So what's better than that? Um, and by the way, I still recommend goals heartily for simple situations. So if you enter a bowling tournament, your goal is to win the bowling tournament, right? I mean, it's a simple situation. And right. usually when it's a, like a human-made uh, construct, they are um, simplified and, and therefore a goal makes sense. Um, here's what may not make sense. Let's say you said my goal is to get my boss's job. It's a pretty common goal, right? That's stupid. Because your boss's job is just one of the many things that could be better than what you're doing now, and the chances are there's something way better than that. You know, your boss's boss's job, for example. You know, what are you doing about that? You know, um, how about some job at another company? How about a lateral move that uh, gets you in a better place to go higher later? You know, so as soon as you focus, you've given yourself something to fail at, and you've closed yourself out from the other opportunities. All right. So, um, what I write about instead is what I call a systems way of looking at the world in which you are continually looking at ways to improve your odds in some favorable area, some favorable uh, focus, you know, without being too specific. Um, So your area might be, you know, business or art or whatever it is. Um, So uh, the the hallmark of a good system is that even as things are failing – you're still improving your odds and your personal worth. All right. So if, for example, uh, I start up a company and it doesn't work, I would say, oh, I had a goal and I started that little startup and it failed and now I'm a failure. But if I started a company that was in a field that I already work and I'm, um, let's say, making all the contacts that I made through the startup, uh, the networking, the things I learned, Made me more valuable in the things you know, maybe my day job or the next job I do. Then I came out ahead. So that's the system. Right? Mm-hmm. Let me let me give you a kind of a non-business example of that. Um, I had a friend in high school who um, wanted to have a girlfriend, and I wanted to have a girlfriend. But he had a he had kind of a systems approach, and I had a goal approach. My goal approach is I'd pick out the uh, the prettiest looking girl in my class, and I'd say this. This girl must be my girlfriend. I will do, do everything I can to make this happen. i would do my research. i figure out who her friends were and where I could hang out. And, and, you know, it might take me months. And at the end of it, it usually ended this way, right? She'd say, you know, one of two things. Either she had a boyfriend, so I've, you know, wasted three months. Or she'd say, I don't like you. Then, <laughs> then, then I've wasted three months. But every once in a while, she'd say, You know, this didn't happen often, but once in a while she'd say, I have a boyfriend and I don't like you. So that was my experience (laughs) with my Michael. So my my friend, though. Even if I didn't have a boyfriend, right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So uh, my best story of rejection in seventh grade was asking the prettiest girl uh, to dance the first time I ever asked somebody to slow dance. And she said, "Uh, You know, it's, it's too hot. I'd rather not. And I said, perhaps if you took off your down winter jacket. And she said, um, and I'm also too tired. All right, so, so that that was that was my dating experience in high school. That was a goal-oriented approach, right? So my friend Manuel, he had a different approach. He had a systems approach. He would simply go wherever there were plenty of uh, girls, and he would ask them in order of uh, descending, you know, descending order of looks, "Will you be my girlfriend?" And, or some version of that, of course, almost everybody said no. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, you're telling me the old story about keep trying, you know, get back on the horse. I'm not telling you that story at all. I'm telling you he was learning a skill while I was wasting my time. That guy knows how to approach strangers. He knows what works, what doesn't. He's got a thicker skin. Um, and he also had a lot of girlfriends, so he was learning a lot that way as well. But, so, so he, he was failing in a way that put him ahead no matter what happened. I was failing in a way that didn't put me ahead. It just made me feel like a loser and probably put me behind for the next time I you know, wanted to uh, feel confident in front of someone else. Um, so – and I could give you more examples from, say, fitness and diet because I know some people have asked about that. Oh, they,
0: they, they, they would love to hear this. Definitely.
1: So a, a goal-oriented approach in, let's say, uh, diet would be – I want to uh, lose 10 pounds, and I'm going to do it with my willpower. I'm going to keep those cookies out of my mouth. I'm going to put the fork down. I'm going to push away from the table. Arr, I'm just going to try harder because that's duck. why.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Now, everybody who's been alive for more than 10 minutes knows that that can work in the short run, but it just doesn't work in the long run. You need something else. You need a system. So here's a system that I've been using that uh, has me in the best shape of my life at 58 and uses no willpower whatsoever. I eat Whatever I want, whatever I want to, it's just that uh, my system is education. I go out of my way. If I see an article that says, new thing uh, discovered about the link between this food and what, now, most of that I can ignore. But every once in a while you see something that says, um, you know, you just uh, eat more protein and less of those simple carbs, uh, good things will happen. And you say, okay, I already knew that one. How deep does this knowledge thing go and how much difference does it make? Well, um, let, me, let me give you an example. Say you and I go to the salad bar, and um, it's a terrible salad bar. All there is is a white potato, plain russet potato, and some plain pasta, and we're both trying to watch our weight. All right, what do you get? Do you get the potato or the pasta? Now, I asked this question in live uh, crowds, and it's about evenly split to half the people, but mostly people don't know. There's only a few people in the whole room who even know the answer. And the answer is actually really clear. It turns out that the the white potato, as opposed to the sweet potatoes that are not bad, the white potato has a terrible glycemic index. The pasta probably should, but there's something about the way it processes that isn't fully understood that it just doesn't. So, you know, pasta isn't the best food in the world if you're looking to watch your weight, but if you had a choice of only those two, I pick the pasta, you pick the potato. You're struggling with your willpower. I'm eating like crazy and I'm having a good time because I've only, I've learned which foods I can eat like crazy and, uh, not stimulate cravings. So if I eat the simple carbs for lunch, I know I'm just going to be hungrier later. I've learned that, um, sometimes sleep pretends to be the same feeling as hunger. So if I haven't slept, I say, Oh, I'm not really hungry. Stop eating. You know, I need to either take a nap or I could eat some peanuts because I've read and I, I've experienced this. So I know it's true. They've eat fat things. They have a lot of calories, and that part's not great. Maybe if you're trying to watch your weight, but they have such a good impact on reducing your uh, your cravings because fat's good at doing that. That you'll make up for it in the long run. And by the way, it's full of protein and goodness, and you know, it's not bad to eat peanuts. So the other thing I do as a process to avoid using willpower is that it would be impossible for me, I think, to stop eating. Um, both the quantity that I want to eat, you know, the food, because sometimes you just gotta shovel a lot in your face. You just, yeah, you, know, you just gotta eat a lot. Right. And sometimes you want to eat the thing you want to eat. So sometimes it's about the flavor and the taste, and sometimes it's, yeah, you just need a lot of food. So I allow myself to have a lot of food anytime I want. It, that I don't put any control on that. I just make sure that it's the kind of food you can eat forever, and you know, you're not regret it. So uh, you know, it's, it could be salads and. Yogurts and fruits and vegetables, mostly raw stuff. And if I think I'm overdoing it a little bit, I'll throw in some, you know, peanuts or some, uh, you know, roasted, uh, you know, creamed
0: almonds or something. And you are and, a vegetarian? Is that is that right? Or have you uh, have been
1: mostly? Yeah, you know, I, I try to introduce fish to my diet, but I'm having a hard time with it because I can't I can't get past the the icky factor. Um, that's just personal. I'd like to, I just can't get past it. So in my case, I use zero willpower, right? And one by one, I have picked off things which were problem cravings, such as Diet Coke. I was drinking uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 a day, I think, of Diet Coke for years, 30 years probably. Uh, Now, if I said to myself, "Today's the day I'm going to go on a healthy eating diet, and Diet Coke was just one of the 45 things I was depriving myself of, it would be pretty tough. But instead, I say to myself, I'm going to eat everything I want all day long. I'm going to drink whatever I want as long as that's on the good list. Mm-hmm. There's just one thing I can't do today, just one thing. It still takes a little willpower, but I noticed that after about a month or so, two months really, to be clean, the craving goes away. And today, you know, a couple of years later, I look at a Diet Coke and it's actually hard to wrap my head around the thought that I would want to put that in my body. It just looks like a little bunch of chemicals. So cravings can be completely managed. If you if you isolate them and pick them out of the herd and you know don't put too much of a willpower burden on yourself at the same time now the downside of course is that this, this takes you know several years instead of you know everybody wants to lose 10 pounds in a month and I don't have any solution for you if you if you know if that's what you want to do now having said all this I'll also say that everybody's different and my good friend and startup partner uh, uh Quinn Harker, he will run a marathon and you know go ride his bike and go for a swim after that Iron man and for him, the challenge and the pain and the willpower is actually part of the attraction right so that's that's part of what it brings it to him so it's no no surprise that his weight is perfect. Because <laughs> yes keep in mind that whatever you hear from me doesn 't apply to everybody, um, so the, the other part of the system is finding experimenting continually, and I know you 're into this um, experimenting and trying to isolate one thing and saying, "Okay, I do this for a week. Did that make any difference in anything
0: absolutely I mean the, the tracking and I just wanted to underscore a few things. The first is that uh, you have become better identifying alternate causes for, say, hunger, right? You didn't sleep enough, et cetera. And for instance, uh, many people who cut Refined carbohydrates or starchy carbohydrates from their diet will feel like they want carbs, whereas in fact they're just dehydrated because when you cut carbohydrates, you retain less water. So, very simple fix for a lot of people is to put some sea salt or sprinkle a little salt into their drinking water, uh, just into a few cups a day, which then eradicates these types of carb cravings. Uh, Branched chain amino acids can do the same thing sometimes. But the uh, the just to touch on the the goals versus systems. So I find for myself that I approach it in a a very similar way, and um, I'd love to ask you about your MBA program in a second, but when I, I decided I would not go to an MBA program but I had fantasized about going to Stanford uh, GSB, uh, Graduate School of Business, for many, many, many years, and I always thought that was kind of where I was. I should have gone undergrad, etc. And uh, at the at the end of it, decided that I would take what that would have cost over two years and invest in startup investments. This was in 2007, right after the four hour work week had come out, and decided that i i would I would invest. Based on the assumption that I would lose it all, but that I would try to optimize for skill acquisition. There you go. There you go. Okay. And so, and so, when I make decisions these days, whether it's a TV show or the Four Hour Chef and trying new distribution with Amazon, even if everything goes sideways, I try to stack the deck. And usually, that's kind of the who, what, where, why, and when run down like a journalist. I'll be like, who am I doing this, right? Let me optimize the people I'm interacting with so that I can acquire as many skills or abilities as possible. Um, you know, When and where, if I can be in novel environments, let me try to optimize for that, et cetera. So that I'll have this goal, and it's usually a big audition, you know, audacious goal of some type. Even if that fails, like the four-hour chef was boycotted by almost every retailer on the planet because it came out of Amazon Publishing. And I was prepared for that, uh, and that then allowed me to do experiments with BitTorrent and so on. So I came out of it not entirely happy with missing the goal, of course, and very competitive, but the there were skills that then carried over to future projects. So I, I, I also view sort of my decisions in a very very similar way. Not to say it's the only way, but I, I find having both to be very helpful for me.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would uh, kind of summarize that by saying, that the product is always yourself right right, right. The, as soon as you lose sight of that then you're um you're working a 14-hour day you're sacrificing your health i mean you probably did all those things too but the path is to do less of
0: that and take
1: care of your health and
0: maximize your your instrument what uh, what was the first time you were paid for dilbert like received payment for dilbert um
1: it was after being syndicated and then waiting several months for the um the accounting to work through the system
0: and that was probably 1989 1989 um I got I'm having trouble doing the math here roughly how old were you at the time let's see oh are, you, are we going to do math in public I'm you trying know, that not to. That, but that is a social 20. so you were like 30 late 30s. I think, the, is that right? Early, early early 30s. Early 30s. And were you at uh, Pac Bell at the time, or had you already left?
1: I was at Pac Bell and stayed there after Dilbert was in newspapers for um, about eight years. Well, no, I, I stayed there for
0: several years after Dilbert, but eight years in total. And was, was that purely to get the income from cartooning to a point where you could – you could uh, you could survive on that, or were there other reasons that you stayed at that job for, for eight years?
1: Uh, I, I'd hate to say skill acquisition, but that's really a big part of the answer. <laughs> um, I was working in the technology lab, um, you know, in those years when the internet was new. Uh, literally, the first person I knew who heard the word internet, you know, outside of my work. Friends, right. um, so we were learning things that I knew had you know huge impact on my future, and I didn't want to kind of lose that. That foot in it, Uh, and that actually became critical for the success of Dilbert later, because Dilbert became the first syndicated comic on the internet, back when that seemed like a silly idea. So someone was at, but uh, when I say skills acquisition, I'm counting the fact that I was getting most of my fodder for the cartoon from my actual experiences and what coworkers were suggesting. So I had that going, but um, yes, I mean I. I waited until I knew I could do it financially, but I continued waiting, waiting long after that because of the skill acquisition, and also because the pain of working completely goes away when you don't need to do it. <laughs>
0: right. It's like uh, it's like dealing with small children, right? As as long as you're not forcing them to do something, uh, the yeah. likelihood of it uh, happening goes goes way up. But
1: but but think of you know just this simple example where in the real world. We'll- Real work world, I'll say, I'm going to try doing X. Oh, my God, if X doesn't work, my career, my promotions, my everything. But now – but after I didn't need to be there, I could just say, oh, what's better, X or Y? X. Right. <laughs> you know, your mind is free.
0: Yeah. No, it's uh – it's, it's, I think, something that is commonly misinterpreted with, say, some of the writing that I've done is people are like, oh, I should just quit everything and throw Hail Mary and sort of jump off the cliff and learn to fly on the way down. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like If you can keep your, keep your current gig, do this on the weekends, do this early in the morning uh, – moonlight and then you can decide where on the spectrum you want to be whether you want to have both jobs when you want to do one twenty percent of the time but there's no need to sort of put all of your eggs in one basket right at the outset what was dogbert's original name <laughs> so before dogbert was published
1: uh, he was a doodle that I would draw on my whiteboard in my cubicle at Pacific Bell and before that at Crocker National Bank and I had a uh, you know, contest to, to name the characters, and uh, the name Dilbert was named by a friend of mine, Mike Goodwin, um, who didn't know he had seen it in a, a World War II cartoon that was had the same name, Dilbert. And I found out about that after it got published. I wouldn't have used the name, but it's lucky I did, and I guess the original creator uh, – didn't have a problem with it because he never contacted me. Um, but because I had this character, Dilbert, and he was the type of guy who would be a loner, I wanted to give him a dog just so there was somebody to interact with. And I wanted the name of the dog to have some correspondence with Dilbert. And so Dogbert's original name was Dil-Dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, did he ever did he did he ever make it into a strip with the name Dil Dog or no?
1: No, I, I wisely decided that was not a good commercial decision. Uh, at least not for newspapers because they're all
0: you know aggressively rated G. <laughs> what uh, what aspects of Dilbert changed uh, besides that in the sort of gestational period or when you were testing out new characters on the whiteboard and so on?
1: Well, in the beginning
0: their characters
1: are um not really formed. So, you know, you've got an idea of who they are and maybe you're thinking of somebody else when you write it. But over time they become um some part of me. You know, they're they each represent a different voice in my head. You know, Dilbert's kinda of the voice of reason and you know, the one that you know is uh oh let's say he's challenged by you know he, he loves a. A challenge. He likes fixing things more than he likes, you know, talking to people and social interactions and stuff. Dogbert is the, the evil part of my brain, the, the little voice in my head that is saying just the worst things when I'm in an otherwise polite conversation. And, you know, it's, it's the voice that's trying to keep me from not laughing or, or forcing me to tell a bad joke suddenly. So I have a reason to laugh at it myself, but really covering up that I'm thinking something horrible. Uh, so yeah, he's he's the worst part of me. You know, my megalomania and my you know my uh, lack of regard for other humans, which I, you know obviously is an exaggeration. I've I have plenty of regard for other humans, but not always their
0: intelligence. So, dog, <laughs> Dogbert takes that role. And you've done, uh, I mean, you, you've had a massively successful career. Obviously, Dogbert has done spectacularly well. Uh, I've heard that. One of the one of the innovative things you did of many was including your email address in your panels. Is that uh, do you think that had a huge impact? And what other types of decisions do you think helped uh, Dilbert to become the success that it became?
1: So there were several key things that happened, and this will dovetail back to a conversation about luck. But um, when we first contemplating putting Dilbert on the internet, that, that in itself looked like a huge risky thing because, my god, you can't give away your content that we're selling to other people right in front of their noses as we're selling it to them. I mean, it sounded it sounded crazy then, right? Today, it's just this normal business, right? Um, but then it seemed like a big risky thing. Likewise, when I decided to see if I could get better user input um, using the things I'd learned in my Berkeley MBA classes, um, I did what no cartoonist had ever done before. And it sounds you know stupid and trivial when you say it from today's perspective, but I opened a channel directly to my customers. So normally what happens is the cartoonist writes something it goes to an editor who sends it to an editor in a newspaper who sends it to production. You know, newspaper delivery boy gives it to the user who reads it. I have no idea what happened after that, right? I don't know if they laughed, cursed, hated me. So I thought, well, I'll do business 101. I mean, this is what I should be doing. It's a business. It's not art per se. And so I, I ran my email address in the margins of the strip. Uh thousands of people started writing to me. I was getting thousands of emails a day. A lot of them said the following. Uh I don't know anybody anyone else who has emails, so I'm writing to you. <laughs> you know, it, it was literally the dawn of the internet. I mean to give you an idea how early it was in the dawn of the internet, my address was my full
0: name Scott
1: Adams at AOL
0: Nobody had that.
1: Nice. <laughs> yeah. nice. I mean, there are six people named Scott Adams in my town.
0: It's like the primordial right. soup of
1: yeah. the Internet days. Right. So um, thousands of people wrote in, but what they said was – interesting. So uh, consistently they said when Dilbert is doing his office type things, which he actually wasn't doing much in the beginning. Mostly he was staying at home and interacting with Dog Bird and going on dates, but only once in a while he would go to the office. Uh, but it turns out people like that the most by far, and so I pivoted. So I changed Dilbert into a workplace strip, and that was certainly the biggest Um, Change, You know, the biggest thing that made a difference. The other was putting it on the Internet early when being early to anything made a big difference, and it was the right product to be on the Internet. But it also solved our biggest marketing problem with newspapers because our salesperson would go into a newspaper and say, hey, here's a new thing, and they'd say, ah, you know, we don't get it. We don't care. In the old days. But once I had, uh, literally thousands of email messages saying, this is the greatest thing, why don't you put it in my newspaper, the, and then they'd name the actual newspaper, I printed them all out, I collected them by what newspaper they mentioned, sent them off, you know, physically, like printouts, to the salespeople, and then they walked into the office of the editor and put the printout on their desk, and the editor said, okay. I mean, you know, for a newspaper, if five people ask for something that they've never heard of, you know, and it's something that they easily, you know, for $20 a month, they can put it in the newspaper um, or whatever it is, you know, they're going to do that.
0: It's true with politicians also, uh, just as a side note for people. Like, honestly, you get 10 people to call a lawmaker's office, especially if they're not somebody who's in the news every day, gets a lot of attention. That's really smart. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and let me say that about me as well. I mean,
0: I'm – um, a
1: voracious reader of all my feedback on social media as well as email and everything else. And I've changed um, substantial things in the way I approach, you know, Dilber or other jobs based on, you know, one or two emails.
0: What, uh, what other types of oh, feedback? Don't answers? ask me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, well uh, I'll tell you
1: the, the biggest change that uh, there were actually more emails than, than a few, but it's one that jumps to mind when, Catbert was originally introduced he was just a cat. He wasn't meant to be a regular character, but thousands of people, I'm not going to say thousands, I'll say probably hundreds of people emailed and said, "We love Catbert." And what's interesting is he didn't have that name.
0: <laughs> so so more I mean many people said Catbert, but you had not given him that name.
1: Right. So <laughs> so Catbert now now it comes out of nothing. I mean, certainly had no plans to have a, you know, a Garfield competitor. And now I'm stuck. I'm like, oh, they all want it, but what am I going to do with it? So I have to, now I'd moved Dilbert into the office by that time. And I'm like, ah, how do I get a cat in the office? It's already too much that I've got a dog there. And then I realized that a cat's personality fits perfectly with human resources. So I made him the director of human <laughs> resources because, you know, like, like a human resources person a cat doesn't really care if you uh, live or die he just likes playing with you before it happens so <laughs> and uh, and recently I started working with a, uh, a company called uh, think HR who does uh, subscriptions of, of HR advice I guess uh, my simple accent description. And uh, I'm working with them with Catbird as a potential way to get their message out there. So uh, this is a good example of the systems versus the goal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly didn't start out to have a cat cartoon. I started out to do a bunch of things. I introduced a lot of characters. I watched to figure out which ones worked. And I just you know put water on the stuff that worked.
0: What are some of the tools that most help you, tools or routines that most help you Cartoon these days, or write for that matter, either.
1: Well, I use my uh, Wacom Cintiq for the the drawing. So what that is is a, a special uh, monitor. In my case, it's a, a really big one. I think it's a twenty seven inches across, um, and I can draw on it directly with the stylus, uh, much like you would draw on paper, although. You have to learn new techniques and use Photoshop and you know, a lot of different stuff. So it's just Photoshop and a Cint- Cintiq. Uh, Welcome. And uh, after that, it's uh, I just usually peruse the news, drink coffee, eat my protein bar in the morning, and – something jumps in my head and if it doesn't maybe I'll read a few email messages that I think will have messages or su- suggestions sometimes I'll check the suggestions coming in from various places usually you know my uh I've got uh, an email address just for that that runs in the strip every day so some combination of that gives me some kind of an idea or I where I jump off of what was the last thing I wrote the day before, because sometimes they lend themselves to a, a serial treatment. But I, I don't have much of a process beyond being in the right frame of mood, frame of mind, physically mm-hmm. and and mentally, like getting rid of all the other distractions. Which is in part why I do it in the morning, not just because my energy and my mind are better, but because of distractions are far less. So, you know, for me, creativity is a process of removing barriers. It's not so
0: much a process of pulling something in that was outside me. Right, right. It's uh, sort of decreasing the, the noise to signal ratio so that what was already there is easier to elicit I, or put down. Is that how you think? No, of it? Well, actually, the, uh, the analogy I use is
1: it has more to do with flow rate. That is to say, um, if I'm busy, I'm thinking about lots of things, I might have one good idea in an hour, but if I clear my mind, I can't stop them coming. They're like, bum, 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 bum. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the part, unfortunately, everybody wants to know, what's the secret to being you know, a creative person and having a new idea every day? And unfortunately, there's just some of this that either is a bad childhood experience or DNA. You, know, you, you can do a lot to make yourself better at whatever you have, but... The flow rate of ideas that I have, I think, probably is unnatural.
0: I think that's true, I, but I also think it's a skill that can be cultivated. Uh, James Altucher, who's a friend of mine, has recommended to his readers for some time to develop the habit of just writing down 10 ideas, uh, I think usually in the morning each day, and I've spoken to a number of people who have adopted this habit, and it's, it's become... Um, sort of exponentially easier over time, uh, to the extent that now they can't contain it to 10. Um, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it is, it is a curious question. I mean, the, 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 the question of creativity comes up a lot, but like you, I have to prevent too many extraneous inputs if I want to have any type of unique output. And so I'd love to ask you about your question or your, your morning rather. If, if you have full control of your day, what does your ideal first 60 to 90 minutes look like in your day? Like what time do you wake up? What type of protein bar do you eat, etc.?
1: So depending on when I went to sleep, either five or six, but let's say five, I get up and uh, I walk directly downstairs um, and get my coffee. So push one button and wait for it. Have my one protein bar, which is always the same because the coffee is always the same, the protein is always the same, and the time is always the same, give or take that hour, because I'm removing decisions. What type of protein bar do you eat? Um, I eat a Builder's 20-gram protein bar, chocolate peanut butter, and I'm so smart that I actually picked it up and had the label in front of me because I expected that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know me well. (laughs) At that point, I usually get on and start looking. I guess I I check, you know, Twitter first, um, and check my webpage to see if anything blew up that I don't know about. You know, did I did I say anything yesterday that caused the world to melt down? Because you know, I'll need to know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Failing that, I usually open um, Business Insider. Because I just like reading. Oh, usually while I'm waiting for my coffee, I've looked at my Facebook feed and, you know, just tweeted, you know, played around. Basically, I'm just trying to wake up, get my mind working. And there's a process where um, once you clear your mind, you have to flood it. And you may use different words for this, but I know you do it, um, so you empty it and then you flood it with new input that's not the old input, so I'm looking at the news I'm looking at stuff I haven't seen I'm not looking at yesterday's problem for the fifth time. I'm looking at a new problem I'm thinking of a new idea, so I'm flooding in all the all the uh, the new stuff but then you then you gotta um, find out where in that flood. Is the little uh, piece that's worth working with, and that's where I that's where I use the body model. I kind of cycle through all this, this the stuff. body model you said. Yeah. But, so the model is um, your brain can't find good content, right? Not directly in an intellectual sense. Obviously, the brain's involved, but what I mean is that as I'm thinking of these ideas and they're flowing through the, my head, I'm I'm monitoring my body. I'm not monitoring my mind. Hmm. and when my body changes i have something that other people are going to care about too
0: oh that's cool i like that so you, right? that means posture or what or what type of indicators uh, are there
1: um i'll tell you when if i'm thinking of let's say a particular setup for a joke i'll i'll think of the joke and then uh quite often i'll audibly go
0: <laughs> right
1: and it wasn't planned right it just it just went <laughs> Um, and it was sort of a half laugh that you do when you're by yourself and you say, think of something funny, but you don't want to do a full laugh. You know, so there's <laughs> sort of thing. There are other times when, um, so for example, I told you the story about being in the shower and thinking of the entire plot for God's Debris in one moment. You know, my entire body lit up. Um, when I had the idea for the, uh, a blog that i wrote recently that just sort of lit up the internet um i felt it as a full body experience long before i wrote it right and so that's that's largely true now with dilbert if you do this long enough a lot of the things that used to be technique just get baked into your personality after a while and so there's stuff you do a second nature that you're kind of moving art into the domain of craft right so for example i know because um, i've you know learned over time, that there are six elements of dimension of humor, six dimensions of humor, and if I use at least two of them, I've got a joke. If I use three of them, it's probably going to be a really good joke, but that's not enough. There's still that, um, there's something about it, that X factor, that thing you can't put your, foot, your finger on, that just makes your body move, you know, it just moves your body, and if you can't get that, um, no craft
0: in the world can survive, you know, you can't resuscitate it and have you, have you you written about the the six elements of humor before
1: uh, i did i i've written about it a number of times i think if anybody googles my name scott adams and
0: six dimensions of humor six you'll dimensions. see a, yeah you'll see a few references to it got it and um, what what would be two examples of the six just just for fun
1: oh i know you're good at this because you know what you just did—that was just so smart. If you, had, if you had asked me for the six, I would have changed the subject because I know I'm not going to remember. But you asked me for two because you know I could come up with two. Um, all right, so I'm going to go for six because you've now made it—you've made it safe for
0: me to do that. Wonderful.
1: Um, so there's cute, there's bizarre,
0: there's recognizable, there's naughty. Uh, how many was that? Yeah, you're already way ahead of the game. You got four. You got cute, bizarre, uh, recognizable, and naughty. Ah, you'll have to Google the rest. But let me let me give you an
1: example. It, um, so, cute is usually uh, kids and dogs, right? So, and bizarre is just anything that's out of place. So, if you know your cartoon history, you will know that uh, the Far Side. Use primarily the dimension of putting something out of place. Mm-hmm. So you'd have an animal talking. So as soon as the animal's talking, he's got one dimension. All right? So he's basically starting a race, and he's already ahead of you, if you're the cartoonist who's sitting there saying, I think I'll do a comic about anything. I, the world is my canvas. All right? But he, start, he started ahead of you already. So he's got the bizarre, and then he'll have the animal say something often in the framing or the type of mood that a human would say, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the recognizable part. So if you could put yourself in the picture and say, oh, oh God, I recognize that situation. Uh, but it's an animal talking. Um, clearly, there's more to it than that. Again, that's just the you have to have at least that two dimensions. Um, take a look at the best comic strip of all time that I think nearly everyone in the world would say, um, Calvin and Hobbes. hmm there's a, there's a talking tiger that is both bizarre and cute, all right? So he took um, the far side one dimension further as a starting point, all right? The, the moment you start reading Calvin and Hobbes, you already have cute because his drawing is amazing, both of the, the child and the – you know, he's got a double cute. He's got a child and an animal, and it's a cool animal, right? Mm-hmm. So he starts that before he even writes a joke. So then, if he has the kid doing something, you know, naughty, or um, um, also anything bad happening to anybody, is of course uh, one of the dimensions. So cruelty. Did I mention cruelty? Am I up to five
0: yet? You're up to five. That's number five.
1: Shoot! By the end of this interview, I will have come up with that six one, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna scream it in the middle of whatever other unrelated question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or you could just leave people with uh, bated breath to to tap Google into their keyboards. That's that's another another way to get them to go to your site. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, we've we've got cruelty. What are what are some of the most um, or could you be just one underrated or underappreciated cartoonist in your mind? People that perhaps listeners haven't checked out that they should check out.
1: I would say a comic called F minus F, being you know like you're a failure. F. I, you can Google that. It's it's syndicated and. Uh, that's the one that makes me laugh the most, of the ones you haven't heard of. Cool. Of the, of the ones you may have heard of that also makes me laugh the most, um, Pearls Before Swine. Um, and that would be no accident because he literally studied the, you know, the two of six rule. And um, you know, I, I had conversations with him when he was coming up. And you can see that he's one of the few cartoonists who's approached it the way I have, which is as a business, not just an art. Right And, and so he's, he's the most methodical operator out there now in terms of doing what is the smartest
0: thing to do for your art. Cool. F-minus and pearls before swine. I will check out both of those. I actually have not checked out either. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but I would love to ask a couple of rapid-fire questions. The answers don't have to be rapid, but I'd love to just ask a couple of, of short questions uh, before we come up on time, if that's okay with you.
1: Sure. And I know you want to ask me about the voice thing. Possibly. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, we could, we could do that first. I mean, could you describe what happened to you? And what you learned from that experience, I mean, and there's there's a fair amount out there for people who want to dig into the specifics of the condition and so on, but maybe you could just give people an overview of what happened because it sounds yeah, so, terrifying.
1: Right. So I'm not going to give like a big scary medical thing on your show. It'd be terrible. And people can Google it. If you Googled uh, spasmodic dysphonia – you would learn that I and tens of thousands of other people had this problem where you lose your voice, um, meaning that it clips uh, your, your vocal cords, spas, at uh, times when you don't want them to, so you can't get out um, words that make sense. Uh, it was so unknown that it took me a long time to figure out what it was, and I had to figure out Using Google and hunting down a doctor and you know doctor to doctor and you know my path went through you know Japan down to USC and finally Dr. Gerald Burke who had invented a surgery that was not well publicized that uh, worked for me. So I've been since then I've been active trying to tell people who have spasmodic dysphonia, which by the way I'm going to do an audio impression of it because there are people listening to this guaranteed who have it and don't know they have it because they've never heard anyone else who spoke that way, huh. and they're trying to figure out what it is. So I'm going to do an impression, and I'm going to send uh, like three dozen people to their doctor with a solution. All right, here's my impression. If I were to order a Diet Coke, um, since my vocal cords would clench, especially on some problem syllables, um, it would come out like a clipped um, cell phone. So instead of a Diet Coke... Or can I have a Diet Coke? It would come out as, and I, I Coke, like mm. that. So it sounds like you're just dropping syllables. So everybody at home who said, holy shit, I know somebody like that, um, the, the name for it is spasmodic dysphonia. But I got something much cooler. You want to hear it? I do. That's on this. We might be able to solve this problem today. Let's this is do literally, it. This is literally true. I might actually be able to, with your help, solve the entire problem for 50,000 people in this country. Maybe. It's a long shot, right? Let's give it a go. But I'm going to take it. All right. The surgery fixed me, and what that involved was cutting some nerves in my neck that disconnected my brain from my vocal cords for three and a half months. They spliced in a new network that takes three and a half months to regrow, and once it regrows, um, then I could talk, but very weakly, and it took uh, you know years to get my voice back to where it is. Um What's interesting about that is nobody knows why that works because the problem has been well identified to be a little uh, brain hiccup. Right. So you don't, f- you don't fix your brain by rewiring the nerves in your neck. Now, hold that thought. Nobody knows why the surgery works. Now, the only other thing that works for this that I've personally uh, verified, because I've talked to the individuals who've done this, and I actually went through this training myself, was a doctor who some thought was a, was a nut because science was not quite supporting his method. But he would go in and he would say, everybody, hum at the key of F for weeks and try to never talk at your natural, deeper tone. Instead, just hum. Now, I think it might have worked for 10 or 20 percent of the people, but keep in mind – This is an incurable problem. Right. The 10 to 20% of the people walked out with perfect voices. I I spoke to uh, one of them, actually several of them. I spoke to live, so I verified, and one of them uh, crossed over my week, so I know it's a real person, not a, a shill or something. Now, what do these two things, the surgery, which nobody knows why it works, and the humming in the key of F, which nobody knows why it works, what do they have in common? In both of those cases, it's the only time... The subject takes an extended period without re-injuring the muscles in the vocal cords.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: so there is a non-zero chance, and I actually act, um, saw my surgeon um, like a couple months ago, just at a, an event, and I said, "Is it possible that the only reason your surgery works is that you prevented me from re-injuring the muscles of my vocal cords for long enough for them to heal for the first time ever?" Because when you have this problem, you end up straining it every single day because you're trying really hard to talk. It's just not working. So imagine if you had a sprained ankle and you ran a marathon every day. It would never heal. Right. So the humming in the key of F uses different equipment, like it uses just a you know, or or maybe it just has less of a pressure on the the same equipment. I don't know. And by the way, I'm, I'm talking. At what I can best approximate as the key of F, I have, I'm tone deaf, so I'm not sure I'm getting there. Um, my normal speaking voice is actually much lower, and I do that to preserve my, my speaking mechanism. That's one of the things you learn. So... Put those two things together. The only two things, these two things that are the only things that work to to solve spasmodic dysphonia is people didn't talk, not even a little bit, using their normal voice for an extended period. Um, Three and a half months in one case, um, maybe as, as few as a week or two weeks in the other case. But if you have this or you know somebody who does and you're listening to this, somebody out there, I want you to see if you're in a special situation where this makes sense for you, just don't talk for two weeks. If you've got maybe a spouse who can answer the phone or – type of job where you can do an email just as an experiment. And then email me as at uh, – you'll see my email address or you can find me on Twitter or, or anything. Uh, you'll see my addresses in the strip every day. And tell me if it worked because if I can get three people in the world that this works for, Tim,
0: we just fixed the problem. It could be a really big breakthrough. No, yeah. I, I love this idea. And uh, for those people who might be considering this, uh, who think they might be a candidate, uh, you could also look at uh, – for instance uh silent meditation retreats there are uh 10 to 14 day silent meditation retreats through groups like Spirit Rock and others so you could actually create a context uh wherein that is reinforced Right, not only it's it's not just willpower, but you're in an environment where it's not permitted. So that that could be also something to look into. But no, this is very exciting. I like this. Yes, idea. and
1: um, I should say that whispering is still uh, perfectly allowed because that doesn't use your vocal cords. So you can communicate with anybody you want to in a quiet room during this quiet period. This is very interesting.
0: Well, I'm glad we touched on that. Uh, yeah,
1: and again, I have to emphasize, it's totally a long shot, but there's somebody who listened to this who's going to try
0: it, and we'll find out. But the long shots are worth it, right? I mean, you mentioned 10 to 20% with the humming and the key of F. If that were a drug for a, for a major condition and the people for whom it didn't work had no side effects – that would uh, there, that would stand a good chance of getting commercialized. You know what so, I mean? I mean that's that's a viable, so, that's a viable tool. If you have a one so, in but, five chance of being
1: uh, but, Well, listen to this. The, um, it gets more interesting because this is more validation for why this might work. This doctor could get no credibility because when he would report his cures, which he was shouting at the, the top of his voice, he was making videos, showing the people, showing the, the actual people talking before and after. It was as convincing as it possibly could be. And when he would take it to the medical community, they would say, oh. It looks like all that happened here is that you, these people were misdiagnosed in the first place. So you didn't cure spasmodic dysphonia. These are people who just had strained voice boxes or strained whatever, vocal cords, and you let them rest them for a while, and now they're
0: better. I say maybe that's everybody. Right, right, for sure. Definitely. I mean, that's uh, it's kind of uh, not entirely a perfect parallel, but a lot of people who consider themselves hard gainers, meaning they they have difficulty gaining muscle mass, is particularly true with men, are simply training too often. They 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 are not physiologically capable of recovering from the the stress that they're imposing on themselves. They never. Uh, they never uh, sort of supercompensate and experience this, this hypertrophy. So it's just a, a matter of removing stimuli as opposed to adding something. You know, the subtraction versus versus addition, which is very anti Western medicine in a lot of respects. But um, in 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 the conventional sense, uh, let me let me ask you let me ask you this: What what besides your own books, what book or books have you given most as a gift? I've never given a book as a gift you haven't wow okay no this is interesting so what uh, do you give gifts maybe this sounds like a weird question but I mean if you do I'd be curious to know what you what you often give as gifts
1: Um, I retired from the gift giving business a while ago um, which takes a long time to train everybody (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) no I I replaced that in favor of being uh, you know a nice person on a general basis right you know right. like uh, maybe i want to buy you something today you know doesn't need to be a reason so no i don't i don't do gifts in particular but i'd say uh if you're looking for a book that i think everybody should read perfect it would be uh, a book called influence um by uh i don't know how robert, to pronounce
0: it robert cialdini or Cialdini.
1: yeah that's that's the part i was choking on i didn't know how to <laughs> pronounce the first part but it's c i a l d i n i yes yeah. A hundred percent of effective people seem to have read that book.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) In fact, that's one of those things that when I meet somebody and they're operating at a pretty high level, if you mention that book, they've all read it.
0: Yeah, Uh, that's true. It's very consistent. But if
1: you talk to the general public, it's still not well known. And then I would add to that, uh, I haven't read these books, but I took the Dale Carnegie course. And if the books say anything that is as useful as the course – that's probably a good thing. I hear good things about
0: him. I'm a big fan of a lot of his work in particular, not the how to win friends and influence people, but how to stop worrying and start living, which I think is a fantastically well-written book on anxiety. And there's a, there's a bit of material on the physiology and so on that's, that's outdated, but the vast majority is is fantastically well done. Well, so. that,
1: that needs an update because I have a theory that there's a, a real um, – there's something like called a digital disease, meaning that if you take the average person and put them in the average simple environment of the past, they were not overwhelmed by its complexity. But I believe that today the average person is overwhelmed by the complexity of life because it got more complicated and that um, I barely know an adult who isn't on some kind of drug either prescribed or otherwise to deal with anxiety and I'm pretty sure that wasn't the case when I was a kid maybe we have more options now I guess I think there's like a, a real legitimate mental illness plague
0: I agree I totally agree and I think uh, I think I saw you mentioned something along these lines on Twitter but it's we're in an, in a, a a distraction economy right I mean we and it's not only limited to a black box in our living room but we have we have obviously the the phones, the tablets, the laptops. Now we have wearables. Uh,
1: well, yeah. Let me let me emphasize that point because I realize I sounded like old man. Get off of my lawn. Um, stop this. Stop this new technology stuff. But I think most people who have heard of me know that I'm very pro future and technology. So yeah, I'm not saying we should we should back up. But keep in mind the names of these biggest companies in your your world, like Google, Apple. Their, their business model is distraction. You know, your smartphone. All of that depends on them taking you off your task and making you look at an advertisement or buy their new song or buy their new thing or look at a new app or something. So they're literally in the business of making you distracted and doing the job that the smartest people in the world using the best science and A-B testing can provide. While in the normal world you had it was a fair fight, right? You're like, <laughs> right. hey, I, I'm going to ignore your billboard on the highway because I can. It wasn't that hard, ha ha. Those guys with the billboards, they weren't using a ton of science. Yeah. But now, now it's me against all the scientists in Google.
0: Yeah, right? it's, it's it's total I, un, It's a total stack deck, I, it, it, not in your favor.
1: Yeah. Uh, before you call, this is a true story. So, as part of the, your process, um, your assistant sent me a form that needed to be filled out. In order to do the process of finding it in my email, printing it out, or in this case, realizing that I had to print out something to look at, to realize I didn't need to print something out, it's you know, it's only two minutes, right? Right. Totally worth the time. Not complaining about the process. Uh, completely necessary, but. In that two minutes, I only had one hope to be able to complete that two minute task within the hour so that I'd have it in on time for the, for this. And the only hope was chanting it continually to keep the other thoughts out of my head. So, so for five minutes, I simply chanted, print the form, print the form, print the form. I I would pick, I I would pick up my phone, just by reflex, and start to hit Twitter while I'm chanting.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I would say, no. I actually have to yell at myself. I yell at my hand, no, no, no. And I yell it out all the way back to the table. <laughs> and then I go, print the form, print the form. And after I printed it, I still had to – then I learned I really needed to do something online instead. And so I had to find that again. <laughs> right. So so I'm now like, find the email, find the email. So without that, I don't have a
0: hope. Yeah, I, and, need, I need to do that more often, I think. Yeah. It's like holding up a shield – to deflect all of the incoming distraction. You mentioned billboards. If, if you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and where would you put it? <laughs> uh,
1: it would say, be useful. It would be everywhere. <laughs> I like uh, it. So, so I, I realized one day that I could um, boil down my entire philosophy of how to live. Into those two words, just be useful. Be useful. Yeah, that that comes from my farming upbringing. My my mother grew up in a farm, and I grew up next to the farm she grew up on. So I worked on it with my grandparents and stuff. Um, And there, you know, there's no wasted energy, right? Because can't afford it. Yeah, waste is death. So you you know, you didn't lean. You always pitched in. You didn't you didn't wait for somebody to ask. You just be useful. And so I you know having now made the money that i need to make i'm you know far more focused on the being useful to the rest of the world part of the equation for the, the second half of my life and far more enjoyable so if you know if somebody says how do i be ha- how do i be happy you know the biggest question in the world i'd say be useful it works every time it doesn't sometimes work it works every time be useful because what guess what people like you they want to be with you you're useful yeah you know? people want to hire you you're useful everything comes together if you just do that one thing and that dovetails back to you know the product is you you know that the project is is semi relevant whether it succeeds what really matters is did you become a more valuable and therefore more useful person at the end of it
0: definitely and you, you, mentioned, you mentioned happy. I think a lot of people strive to be happy. A lot of people also strive to be successful, and that means different things to different people. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind for you?
1: <laughs> well, Donald Trump, but only because he's in the news. It was you know, So so I think the, the, the test was completely polluted. What I think is successful. I would say, um, if I think of it for two seconds, Bill Gates, and uh, there's nobody in second place. Why is that? First of all, he, he amassed a huge amount of money, but it did so in a way that made the world forever better. Alright? And, and I'm sure that you know, now that you see how the second half of his life is going, I think that he always needed something that didn't just make money. You know, I think the putting the computer on every, on every desk or whatever, uh, was a real thing. Um, I believe he amassed that money largely so he could do the second part of his life. Uh, and now you take the smartest, most rational human um, the world has ever produced, uh, and find out, well, surprise. Everything you thought about him wasn't exactly what you thought. And years ago, when he said his plan was to give it away, and nobody really took that seriously, guess what? He's doing that too. And the way he's doing it is he's picking the thing that governments can't do and poor people can't do. He's, pay, he's taking not only the place that has the greatest leverage because you know he can go in with his brains and money and his scientific ways and you know the the energy that he can attract to himself and pick off these things you know his contribution to Africa by the time he you know takes the dirt nap or transfers his uh, life force into software which I think is far more likely in his case. They may rename the nation after him. You know, It might it might be the continent of Bill Gates when he's done. And I'm not sure if everybody sees this coming. I mean, right. he's working on stuff like fixing water. <laughs> you know, like, how, how would everybody like to have water? Wouldn't that be good? I mean, he, he's going after the, the biggest targets with some guns that have all the ammunition that you would need to go after those targets, and nobody else can do it.
0: Yeah, he's, he's a very impressive guy. I heard a, a first-person... Anecdote from a friend of mine who uh, somehow ended up going on a bird watching tour with Bill Gates. <laughs> and, uh, wow. It's a small group of people. And, uh, and Bill Gates spent maybe an hour the night before reading a bird watching guide. And according to my friend, I mean, literally had perfect factual recall of that book on. The tour the next day to the point where he could talk to this professional bird guide in a tropical environment on a peer level. a just <laughs> mind-boggling. I mean, <laughs> talk about CPU power. Um, yeah. Uh, what advice? And I'll just ask you one or two more questions. What advice would you give to your thirty-year-old self? Yeah, thirty-year-old self.
1: Um, that was a that was a time of great transition. I would say. Probably patience because, you know, I've been playing the, the system game and not the goal game since um, since I got out of college and literally have a, a diary in which I, I wrote my master plan. If you take, you know, 10 years following a, a process and it's not giving you uh, results, that's hard to remain patient. So uh, in retrospect, that was the only thing I needed to uh, – to maybe you know alleviate some of my pain, but on the other hand, impatience probably drove me harder. So maybe I wouldn't tell myself that either.
0: And if, if your thirty year old self said, "How how exactly do you propose I be patient?" What would you? How would you respond to that?
1: Um, well, my thirty year old self wouldn't have access to medical marijuana, so I would have to. I'm a, I have a limited <laughs> limited canvas with which to paint. Um, I, I've always. Made it a uh, a top priority since I was a teenager and had uh, tons of stress-related medical problems. To make that job one to learn how to not have stress, mm-hmm. I would consider myself a world champion at avoiding stress at this point, in dozens of different ways. And a lot of it is just how you look at the world, but most of it is um, is really the process of uh, diversification. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to worry about losing one friend if I have a 100, but if I have two friends, I'm really going to be worried. I'm not going to worry about losing my job because my one boss is going to fire me um, because I have thousands of bosses at newspapers everywhere, and Mm -hmm. lots of them can like me one day, and it doesn't make any difference to my life. So one of the ways to not worry about stress is to eliminate it. I I don't worry about my… My stock uh,
0: picks because I have a diversified portfolio.
1: So diversification works in almost every area of your life to reduce your stress.
0: I love this. Well, Scott, we need to – hang out more. We need to play more tennis. We should get Naval in the room to just up the intensity quotient. Also, not, <laughs> not, that we need it, but, uh, always fun to, uh, to, to chat with you. And, uh, where can people learn more about you? Find you online? Say hello. Uh, where would you like people to, to check you out?
1: Um, I would like people to go to Dilbert.com and check out my blog if they like my non humor thoughts. Um, Pretty soon, uh, my startup, which is now called uh, calendartree.com, will uh, have a little pivot and have a new name, um, and we'll make lots of noise about that, but you'll want to watch for that.
0: And uh, what is your your Twitter handle, if people want to ping you on Twitter? Uh, Scott Adams says. And if you could make, just in closing, one ask or uh, recommendation to the people listening to this. What would, what would that be besides checking your stuff out?
1: Think of your life as a system. Think of yourself as the most important part of the system. Be useful and make yourself uh, more valuable as you go.
0: I love it. So, everybody listening uh, for for links, I'll also include specific links to a couple of popular posts on Scott's blog. Just visit the show notes. Everything we mentioned will be in there at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out. And uh, Scott, keep creating, man. I love your stuff and uh, hope to see you again soon.
1: Thank you, Tim. I love this. Let's do it
0: again.